Perhaps you read the story about a backwoods man who took his family into the big city for the very first time. Walking the streets, mesmerized by the great skyscrapers, the family followed a crowd through some strange, slowly spinning glass doors. As they emerged into a huge indoor area, the mother and the daughter stopped to marvel at a gliding silver staircase. Their eyes were amazed. The father and son then moved further into the building. In a few moments, they were standing in front of a large wall filled with several pairs of shiny metal doors with lighted buttons next to each. As they gazed at some blinking numbers above each of the doors, a grumpy, mean-spirited old woman with a red shopping bag approached the set of doors nearest to them. As if by magic, the doors slid apart, revealing a small, empty, wood-paneled room. The woman stepped inside, and the doors closed behind her. The father and the son stood transfixed. What's happening in there? Why would she want to go into such a small and tiny room? A minute later, the doors once again magically opened, and out stepped a beautiful, energetic young woman with a red shopping bag in her hand. She walked by them and brushed the father's shoulder, and without taking his eyes off the elevator, the father leaned over and said to his son, son, go get your mother. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, apart from the amusement value, which is kind of funny, one of the reasons why I like this story is because it speaks to a very common tendency that we all have, and that's to fix other people, especially those we are in conflict with. I mean, do we not often think that so often the problem is the other person, their issues, their, their sin's the problem in this conflict? If I, and if I could only fix them, if I could only put them in a magic box a magic room where they would come out changed like that country father perceived that elevator to be, then, then the conflict would be resolved. If I think for a moment to the last time you had some kind of conflict or in a conflict with a spouse, a, a co-worker or a sibling, did this not come to mind? Have you ever thought this before? I know I had. I have. Man, if the other person would only change. If they would alter their thinking, if they would change, then, then everything would be so much better. I mean, I can see their problems and sins so clearly. Unfortunately, though, no such magic room exists, does it? But conflict still does. So what are we to do? How are we to respond? How are we to act? How can we bring about resolution to the conflicts that we often face and experience? 
For, for over a year now, we've been studying the books of First and Second Samuel. Last week, we studied Second Samuel chapters 2 through 3. Those chapters tell the story of David's journey to be enthroned as the king of Israel. And you'll recall that those chapters are full of something. You know what that something is? Conflict. Conflict and fighting. Lots of it. As several commentators have pointed out, David's ascension to be king is marked with discord and adversity. So last week, after surveying these two, after surveying these two chapters, we asked the question, what would the New Testament authors say about the conflict, fighting, arguing, and murder we find in these chapters? That is to say, what would the New Testament authors diagnose as the problem in these chapters? Indeed, what would they diagnose as the source of the conflicts we experience today? And it's a really important question, isn't it? Because unless we first discover the source of our relational conflicts, we will never know the solution. And the good news is, we don't have to guess. You'll recall how the Apostle James answers this very question, doesn't he? Do you remember what he says? I have it here up here on the screen. James writes this. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And this is exactly what we see happening in chapters 2 and 3 of 2 Samuel. Those two chapters are marked with adversity and fighting. And you know what we find? We find murder. We find coveting. We find these various issues and conflicts. And the New Testament speaks directly as to what the source of those conflicts are, aren't they? Notice what he says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not the other people in your life? Is that what he says? No. James is saying this. Your relational conflict comes from your ruling desires. Your relational conflict comes from your ruling desires. Friends, please hear me. All the conflict you experience, whether it's in your living room, your TV room, your bedroom, the schoolroom, Israel, Judah, Gath, Hebron, no matter where you might find the location of your conflict, the source, the Bible teaches, comes from your ruling desires. Notice again, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
Don't, don't miss what James is saying here, friend. In each and every conflict, there is a temptation, and we talked about this last week, to misdiagnose the location of our conflict as being the source of our conflict. I gave the example of my dad. He was having some shoulder problems, some shoulder pain. And for weeks and months, he kept massaging it, trying to take care of it. He had pain here. He thought this was the source of the pain until one day he goes into a hot tub and he puts his foot on the bottom of a jacuzzi thing and as the jacuzzi jet massages the bottom of his foot, the pain in his shoulder goes away. But he suffered for weeks and months on end because my dad mistakenly confused the location of his pain as being what? The source of his pain. We can do the same in conflict as well. We can think the location, my marriage, my job, my school, we can mistakenly think that the location of the conflict is the source of the conflict. But what is James making very clear here? Let's see that route. Your relational conflict comes from your what? Ruling desires. There's something you want so much, you're willing to sin to get it and sin if you don't. So think back to the last conflict or fight you had. What was it you really, really, really wanted in that moment? What were you willing to sin to get and sin if you couldn't get? Whatever that was, however you answer that question, that is your ruling desire. That is the inordinate passion within you. We could say it this way. A ruling desire is your king in that moment. It's the object you are submitting to. So when you have two people, <laughs> or three people, or four people, or five, or six, are in your family, if you have a group of people, indeed, yay, you could have a church. And every person has a ruling desire, something they're willing to sin to get, and if they don't, you're going to have constant conflict. But if Jesus is ruling your heart, if that's what's your greatest passion, you will not act in sin towards those that have differences, but you'll display the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Make sense? You with me? Yet so often we misdiagnose the location as being the source. So friend, please hear me. Your marriage is not the source of your conflict. It's simply the location. It's the location where your ruling desires, your lusts are being revealed. So here's the question that I want us to consider here pastorally for a moment. And that is, how do you know if something is a ruling desire or not? Please hear me. The Bible does not say it's wrong to have a preference. The Bible says it is not wrong to have a desire or to like something. We talked last week, right? Some of you may really, really like a certain type of food and your spouse likes a different type of food. That's not wrong. 
No, it's not wrong to have a desire or preference. The problem becomes when those desires become ruling desires. So how do you know when a preference has crossed the line? Well, we've talked about this before. The best diagnostic question to ask yourself is this. What am I willing to sin to get and sin if I don't get it? If you want to know if you have a ruling desire, that's the question to ask. What am I willing to sin to get and sin if I can't get? And I need to say, most often, our ruling desires aren't bad things. They're good things. But please hear me. Good things become bad things when we make them ultimate things. This is to say, sin is not only wanting bad things, it's wanting things badly. For example, it is not wrong for a, Christ, for a Christian wife to want her husband to be the spiritual leader in their home. That is not a bad thing. That's a good and noble thing. But if she's willing to sin to get that by manipulating her husband, or she sins by giving way to self-pity because she can't have that, then that has become her ruling desire. She, she's valuing that desire more than God. Willing to sin to get it and sin if I can't. But that's not all. Our text this morning reveals other symptoms of a heart that is ruled by something other than God. And that's what I want us just to look at for a couple moments this morning. The main characters in our text this morning help us see in real time what it looks like when your heart is ruled by something other than God's king. So if you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 2. I know it's a long introduction. Don't fret. Don't worry. That's page 255 in that paperback Bible. As you're turning there, let me just give you the context. In the opening chapter of 2 Samuel, David learns about the death of which two people? Saul and Jonathan. And then at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 1, he leads the nation of Israel in lamenting the death of Saul and Jonathan. Well, in the opening verses of the next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 2, we see David doing something that Saul really didn't. And that is we see David inquiring of the Lord and submitting himself to God's plan and timing. David asked God, you know, what should I do next, Lord? He says, I want you to go to Hebron. And there at Hebron, David is anointed as the king over Judah. And what we see even from the opening verses of chapter 2 is that David in many ways is everything Saul is not. David submits to God's rule in his own life. He doesn't seize control. And what the text is trying to let us know is that David truly is the anointed king. He is God's choice to be the king of his people. And really, when we take a step back, that's where what this text contributes to the overall story of the Bible. 
right? As, as we survey the, the big story of the Bible that culminates in God's true king, Jesus Christ, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, as we take a step back, we see in this beautiful story, God's first choice for king for his people is David. Yet on another level, when we enter the mess of the conflicts in these chapters, we see the various ways in which the truth of James chapter 4 plays itself out. So how do you know if you have a, a ruling desire? And again, I, I say this so that as, we, as the light of God's word shines in our hearts, if we see sin in our lives, we would turn from it and turn to the Lord. Well, I believe this text shows how ruling desires act in some sophisticated ways. And there's three in particular. Let me also just say there's, there's much we could say about the complexity of the characters in these chapters, but I just want to direct your attention to the concerns that the author makes prominent. And, and here's the first. We learned this. We learned that ruling desires defy God's authority. So let's go ahead and let's look here, beginning in verse 8. 8 of chapter 2, okay? So David has just been anointed the king over Judah, right? And uh, we've been knowing this since 1 Samuel 15. And you know who else has known this since 1 Samuel 15? Has been Abner. And let's, let's just do a pop quiz, okay? There's David. David's right-hand man is who? Do you remember? So, very good, very good, okay? Saul, when he was alive, he had a right-hand man, and what's his name? Abner. Abner, yes. Abner's kind of the big character in this, these two chapters. So Abner knows full well that David is the guy. He's known this since chapter 15, yet notice what we see Abner doing here in verse 8. Follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. David's just been anointed king. We read this, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanam, and made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Okay, now look, notice what's happening here. Abner, Saul's right-hand man. He knew David was to be king. In fact, he even says this later on in chapter 3. In fact, remember, Abner was the guy who was standing right next to Saul when David killed Goliath. He knows David's to be the king of God's people. Yet, what do we see him doing here? Who's he anointing as king? Yeah, we'll just say Saul's son, okay? Saul's son, make it easy on us, right? Abner is not submitting to David as king, but instead, he's anointing Saul's son. You know what? What Abner is doing is he's defying God's authority. So notice what he does next in the following verses. So Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years, for the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. This is going to be important in a moment here. Verse 12. Abner, the son of Ner, 
and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Last year, uh, we were flying back from visiting my family in California. We're flying back to Louisville, and we had a layover in Denver. And we were tired, we were exhausted, we, we weren't in that much of a great mood. Yet, yet, we had a really pleasant surprise when we arrived in the Denver airport. You know what it was? We ran into Ginny Cunningham. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but we never run into people we meet when traveling. Never. Yet I must say, it was really, really nice to see her. It was a treat to see her. That, that unplanned meeting was a joy. Okay? What we just read here is not unplanned. This is no chance encounter that Abner and his men are all of a sudden right next to Joab and his men. What we need to understand is that Abner here is on the attack, okay? He not only just immediately anoints Ishbosheth to be the king over the northern tribes, but then he travels quite a distance to get right up to the line where David and his men are at. He's intentionally, intentionally trying to impose his might on David's kingdom. So look at what happens next. And Abner said to Joab, you know what? Hey, let the young men arise and compete before us. He had in mind some kind of like competition where they do something to show their strength. Nothing very serious. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And notice the fight turned deadly, and each caught his opponent by the head, and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. And tell me, class, every death we read in chapter 2 and 3, how does each person die? Side, side. Who else died that way at the end of 1 Samuel? What the text is trying to illustrate and connect the dots for us is as these people that die by these side wounds they're all Saul-like figures. And notice, this was led by who? Begins with an A. Abner. Abner. Ruling desires defy God's authority. In uh, 1875, the British poet William Ernest Henley published a short poem called Invictus. Have you heard of it? Am I pronouncing it correctly? I think so. I've heard it that way. <laughs> it's, it's well known for its final two lines. And do you happen to know how they go? I'm going to read the first part, right? Henley writes this. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my... Oh, very good. Since its publication, many have understood... The, the poem in its entirety, but especially those last two lines to be an expression of contempt towards God. In fact, one journalist writes this. 
He says, the poem is a final and terrible act of defiance. The horror might indeed have awaited Henley. He would go there on his own terms. Listen to this phrase. Leaving the spittle sliding down his maker's face. Defiance. Well, we see the same kind of defiance in Abner towards God in Abner's rejection of David as king. As Old Testament scholar C.F. Keel has written, he says this, the promotion of Ishbosheth was not only a continuation of the hostility of Saul towards David, but also an open act of rebellion against the Lord who had rejected Saul and chosen David prince over Israel. It was an act of rebellion. And faith, so it is with every ruling desire. By definition, a ruling desire defies God's rightful rule in your life. And what we see in Abner here are the sophisticated ways in which such a ruling desire plays itself out. And as these two chapters make clear, I want to argue, you know what Abner's ruling desire was? His greatest ambition was power. And let me tell you one of the ways why we know this is the case. Have your eyes look at verses 10 and 11 of chapter 2 once more. We're told that David was king in Hebron for seven and a half years, while Ishbosheth was king in Israel for how many years? Two. You know what this means? It suggests that Abner did not appoint Ishbosheth immediately in response to his dad's death. But instead, listen to this. Abner waited five years into David's reign before he then appointed Ishbosheth a king over the northern tribes. You know what this means? What was happening? Abner had made a calculated decision. He surveyed the landscape. He's like, what's my best way to get the power I desire? And he discovered and thought after five years, it would be through anointing Ishbosheth. And again, keep in mind this whole time, Abner knew who was to be king. David. Dale Ralph Davis writes this penetrating application. He says this. He says, let Abner preach to you. Let him tell you that it is possible to know the truth, but not embrace the truth. To quote the truth, but not submit the truth. To hold the truth, and yet assault the truth. And so Abner joins all the other antichrists who strut around and say, I will be king. And faith, by way of application, I need to confess to you, Abner's not alone. Can we not do the same thing? How many of us are so familiar with the truth of God's word we know what it says. We know his plan. We know his will. We know his desire for our lives. Yet like Abner, we choose not to submit to it. And what is it? As a child of the 80s, I grew up with G.I. Joe, the real American hero. And remember how every episode ends? Some, some, something would happen and he'd say some kind of truth and G.I. Joe would say, and now you know, and knowing is what? 
Half the, yes, yes, those few. Thank you. Now you know, and knowing is what? Half the bad. It is, because it's not enough to know. Abner knew. And I think the application that this text presses upon our hearts is, are we following in Abner's steps? If we are, that's a sure sign something else is ruling our heart other than God. But then second, we see ruling desires devalue God's worth. So, pop quiz again. Remember from last time. How many brothers does Joab have? Two. That's right. So right after this exchange where all these young guys die from the swords in their side, one of Joab's brothers sees Abner and goes after him. Remember this? And he undoubtedly thought, if I can kill Abner, especially after this fiasco, David's probably going to give me a higher place in his, in his kingdom. So this guy who's swift as a gazelle, the text says, he runs after Abner. And what does Abner keep telling him to do? Turn back, stop, stop, don't do it. Does the guy listen? So this guy comes. He had an ambition. He had a ruling desire. If I can only kill Joab, or I'm sorry, not kill Joab, kill Abner, right? If I can only kill him. And what ends up happening? Abner in self-defense, he kills him. And how does he kill him? Right, okay. How do you think that makes Joab feel? Angry. One of his brothers is dead. Yet somehow, Abner convinces Joab, let's stop with the sword fighting, let's stop with the bloodshed. That's how chapter 2 ends. Now notice what we see at the beginning of chapter 3. We didn't read this last week. And I want to direct your attention there. The text picks up there. It says this, chapter 3, verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And the sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon, of Ahioam, of Jezreel. His second, Kiliab, of Abigail, the widow of Nabal, of Carmel. The third, huh, who's this guy? Absalom, the son of Micah, the daughter of Telmai, king of Jeshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. And the fifth, Shephtiah, the son of Abiatal. And the sixth, Ethrium of Igal, David's wife. And Lord, I apologize if I mispronounced those names. Would these people please forgive me if they're in your presence now, okay? These were born to David in Hebron. Let me ask you, according to these verses, what has David taken a lot of? Wives. As great as David is, you know what the author is cluing us in on? He's still weak, and he has many failures. In his excellent commentary, Richard Phillips points out how David's accumulation of wise, wives directly violated God's ordinance. We know this. In the beginning of the Bible, marriage is instituted by God to be a covenant between one man and one woman, right? Furthermore, Israel's law 
specifically prohibits polygamy. If you're the note-taking type, we see this clearly in Deuteronomy 17, 17. So notice, David is not only going against God's good design for marriage as revealed in the opening chapters of the Bible, but he's also directly in violation of God's commands. Concerning polygamy, author and pastor Richard Phillips makes this really great and astute observation. He writes this. He says, polygamy promotes the very vices that Christian marriage is intended to restrain and avoids the very virtues that biblical marriage is designed to promote. David's lust for women will eventually be his greatest fall, as we're about to see in chapter 11. And interestingly enough, notice who's mentioned in this list. Ominously, both Absalom and Adoniah are mentioned. Two sons of David that are going to give him his greatest pain, right? Now look at what we learn about Abner in these next verses. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rithpah, the daughter of Ayah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? You recall from last week, it, for, for a person to take control or to have the harem of the previous king was an assertion that he is now king. And Abner thinks that's, or Ishbosheth thinks that's what Abner is doing. And Abner, notice his response, he's very angry, verse 8. And Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth, this accusation that he had done that and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, and to his brothers, and to his friends, and have not given you the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with fault concerning a woman? God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord had sworn to him. Again, Abner's revealing he knows what's going on with David. Because he goes specific in verse 10, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over, the, over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ithbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Abner's like, I'm out of here. I'm done with this. I'm going over to David. Pastor and author Donald Gray Barnhouse tells a story about a little boy named Willie. This young lad had crawled out onto the ice on a pond in order to rescue a friend of his who had fallen through the ice. And as you might imagine, many people praised Willie for his heroic act, especially for being a young boy. Well, shortly after Willie rescued the boy, a young lady asked Willie, she said, Willie, tell me, how were you so brave enough to risk your life to save your friend? To which Willie replied, I had to because he was wearing my ice skates. We see a similar attitude in Abner. Abner did not seek to expand David's kingship because he felt the authority of the Lord's promise, but because he sought his own advantage. As several commentators have pointed out, 
It's not out of a love for the Lord's design, but a concern for his position that Abner joins David. You see, Abner found David useful, but not worthy. In many ways, Abner's disposition towards King David is very similar, I think, to what we see in the crowds towards the Lord Jesus in John 6. You'll recall that in John chapter 6, Jesus performs the incredible miracle by feeding the large crowd with only two fish and five loaves of bread. Remember this? And do you remember how the people responded in John 6 after Jesus multiplied the fish and the loaves in February? Do you remember what the crowd wanted? The crowd, the text says, the crowd wanted to make Jesus king. However, do you remember what Jesus did? He withdrew to the mountains. And you know why Jesus withdrew from the mountains? Think about this. He just fed all these people. And they're like, we want to make you king. Yet he withdrew. And you know why? Well, John chapter 6, verse 26 tells us, listen to this. Jesus withdrew from the crowd because the crowd found him useful but not worthy of worship. Instead of seeing Jesus for who he truly is, precious and valuable, worthy of our full devotion, they saw him instead like a disposable cup, simply useful because he could fill their stomachs. I mean, listen to what Jesus says. This is his, you could say, his rebuke to the crowd. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, meaning signs that point to the fact that he is the Son of God, worthy to be worshipped, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, Jesus was useful for them. He could fill their stomachs. Indeed, that's why they ask him to perform another miracle in the next couple of verses. In faith, this is Abner. Goes to King Jesus because it's useful, it's to his advantage. The crowds go to King Jesus because he's useful and to their advantage. And if we're not careful, it can be us too. In fact, I want to argue this is precisely what James is getting at in verse 3. When he talks about prayer, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your what? Your passions. God is like a cosmic vending machine. In fact, here's... What I was challenged with this week, and I want to ask you too, do you go to God in prayer in response to your ruling passions so you can get what you really want? Or do we go to God in prayer because he's the greatest value and joy to have? And we make our requests known and we entrust to him our greatest desires. A symptom of a ruling passion is that God to you is simply a means to an end. And then finally, I think this text insightfully teaches that a ruling desire displays self-interest. So, Abner goes to David. David welcomes him. They have this feast. They go into a covenant. Yet just as David sends Abner away, notice what we find here in verse 22. 
Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Nor came to the king, and he has let him go. He has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you? Why is it that you sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Nor, came to deceive you and to know you're going and you're coming in and to know that all you are doing. He's yelling at the king. Verse 26, Then Joab came out from David's presence, no doubt steaming, and he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the what? Stomach, so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. And then David curses Joab, leads a mourning for Abner, and then have your eyes fall in verse 37. And verse 36, excuse me. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them as everything the king did pleased all the people. Now, it appears that Joab is just simply acting out of revenge. However, I do think there's more going on here, namely that Joab saw Abner as a rival, and he feared that Abner might replace him as commander of the army. In fact, that could have well have been what was in the works as part of David's deal with Abner in verses 17 through 18. And what I want to argue is that Joab here is acting out of pure self-interest, not only in murdering the man who killed his brother, but also in doing away with the competition. And here again is another sign. If you want to know if something has become a ruling desire, look at your interests. Are you really living to please yourself or are you living to please Christ? Okay, so let's, let's bring this in for a landing and let's come full circle, okay? James has clearly identified the source of our conflicts and quarrels and it comes from our what? Say it like you mean it. Healing desires. And the passage we just studied, 2 Samuel 2 and 3, masterfully, I want to argue, illustrates the presenting symptoms of a ruling desire. So two practical questions. First, what are we to do if we see these symptoms in our own lives? Well, the Bible's answer to that is to confess and repent. Own your sin, don't excuse it. Follow the, the command and counsel of 1 John 1, 9. Confess your sins to God and receive his cleansing, believing his promise that he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. Second question, how do we overcome the conflicts 
we so often experience in our marriages, in our homes, and in our churches, in our work. How do we, how do we overcome this? You know what the answer is? It's by having a new passion. Indeed, your relational conflicts come from your ruling desires. So the way we overcome conflict is by our, ourselves, us, having a new passion. Indeed, the ruling passion we need, need to have is the passion to glorify God rather than ourselves. Our passion needs to be to please Christ rather than ourselves. This is the starting point. If you hear nothing else I say this morning, please hear me. Having your passion be the desire to please Christ in each and every situation, that is the starting point to overcoming relational conflict. If I cannot get two people to start there when they're in the counseling chair, we have no hope. But if I can get two people who profess faith in Jesus Christ to say, you know what? I'm going to make it my aim, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. I'm going to make it my aim to please him. Peace, joy, happiness, sunshine and lollipops. Right? That's the starting point. And that's precisely why God sent Jesus Christ to earth. God sent Jesus Christ to save defiant self-serving people like you and me who have not valued God like we ought. People who deserve God's just condemnation for their sin. Sin that the Bible teaches has earned us death and eternal separation in hell. But the good news of the Bible is that there's a greater David, a king who is wholly devoted, please hear me, to one bride. And the bride King Jesus loves exclusively is who? The church. And how has Jesus loved us, his bride? By dying in our place so we would be forgiven of our sin and escape the wrath of God. Unlike you and me, Jesus did fully submit to the Father's authority. He truly valued God. And unlike Joab, he displayed the ultimate self-sacrifice. And Jesus did this all on the cross. And salvation comes to those who turn aside from their sin and go all in trusting Jesus to save him or her. Friend, do you know this salvation? Because if you do know the salvation, Christian, your new passion now is to live for Christ. God has commanded you to no longer live for yourself. So the question we need to ask ourselves in each and every moment is not what do I want in this situation? But rather, what does God want of me in this situation? How can I please Him? That is to be our ruling desire, friend, Christian. And may it be true of us. Let's pray.